This is Melissa. It's the 16th of July, 2023, and I just wanted to say just a couple of things really quickly today for this Redux, mostly just to communicate a few things with you. The first is that I'm very behind on correspondence of all kinds. I've had some nice letters from people and emails, and I, I wanted to say that, that I do read everything that comes in. And I just can't keep up. I'm so far behind on emailing people. And I'm try. I will try to get caught up. The second thing is that I just had this crazy week, a very you know, like if it could if it can go wrong, it did go wrong. I had a an extra refrigerator and a garage, which is a nice thing to have. But it broke. And it was this strangest thing, evidently, years ago, a long, long time ago, some squirrels made a nest in the bottom. It's, they're long gone, but it was full of huge nuts. I don't even know what they are, big, huge nuts. And there was a garden glove. It was not really recognizable, but we figured out that that's what it was that got it was part of their nest, I guess, at the bottom of the refrigerator in the back, and then where the motor is. And it had gotten caught up in the fan and probably spun around the fan for a long, 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 long time until the extra stress on the fan burned the regulator out. Anyway, I lost all the food in there, which was sad, and it took a long time to clean it all up, the back of it, and then I finished cleaning out the inside yesterday. So it's a big job. And then my car wouldn't start yesterday. And I, I've known that the carburetor needed some help. And I, Alan taught me this trick, you know, take the air filter off of a vehicle. I learned this on an old car a long time ago with him, and you can actually drop a little bit of gasoline right on top of the carburetor or spray some engine starter gasoline. I don't remember what it's called. It comes in a can. <laughs> I've been doing that. I take the air filter off and spray that on the carburetor, and it's been running. It's been okay. But it wouldn't start, and this time it's definitely the carburetor. It's not the starter. It's not the battery, so it could be the fuel pump, but anyway, it has to be dealt with. I've got a loaner from my brother, and I am okay. One of the reasons why I was thinking about all of that, though, is because I wanted to start on a new series. Someone wrote me about an organization that I hadn't thought about in a long time, um, a, a foundation, I guess, an institute, and I started to look into them deeper than I ever had before, and it was quite interesting. And I thought this would be a good idea for a series because it ties in, in a way, with some of the things that have been on my mind lately. talked to Neil the other day about 15-minute cities, kind of the, the beehive idea of cities where everything is self-contained and it is rapidly coming upon us. And so I picked out a talk, and I thought that that would be a good kickoff for the series, 
but as it turned out, because of my week, I really had almost no time for research. The other thing <laughs> that happened this week is that three people wanted to pre-record real history because it's summer vacation, which is great. And so they had time, and so I did those. And then I had an aunt in the midst of all this craziness who came up from South Texas, and that's like 10 hours away. And this was a very special thing. She was able to be here for about three days, and she stayed at my Aunt Betty's house. And so that was fun. It was nice having her here. But I was trying to squeeze in everything and still take some time to enjoy my Aunt Mary's uh, company because she is 95. She'll be 96 in September. So, you know, you want to spend time when you can. So all of that was going on, and I could, I decided not to start with the Redux that I had chosen, simply because I had no time to do much research at all on this organization that I want to cover for a week or two. Instead, I chose a talk that Alan did, May 10, 2007, Don't Drive, Behave, Behive, or... Hitchhiker's Guide to Behavior Modification. And again, that's May 10, 2007. And Alan talked about a lot of things that, like I said, tie in with what's been on my mind, what I've talked to other people about, what I want to research. He went in a little bit into foundations and the money that goes into these foundations. It's these thousand points of light. So that is that. That's what you're getting. And uh, meanwhile, as I have time next week, I'll start to research and bring you what I hope is an interesting addition to a couple of Alan's talks. So when thinking about doing this, I thought, well, this would be a good time for me to read a book that Alan talked about a lot over the years, but I've never read, called Foundations, Their Power and Influence by Renee Wormser. And so I'm going to start reading that. So anybody who wants to keep up or read along or your homework assignment or it's the summer book club or however you want to look at it, it's Renee Wormser, the first edition was 1958. I think I'm reading a, a third edition of the book published in the 90s, and that is called Foundations, Their Power and Influence. And a couple of other things I wanted to mention quickly, and that is um, the videos that went along with the excerpt series called Programmed People. There were 12 of them, and they were all done by Mike in Canada. And he did a great job, and he did a great job, and he also inspired me to be a little bit more adventurous in the videos that I was doing for the Redux in Real History. So that's been fun. And Mike is having a bit of a summer vacation, and in steps Diana, who wanted to try her hand at, try, at making videos. And she has done three of them so far. And so the, the one that went up, um, the one that's going up, the first one in the excerpt series that she's calling Experiments. Episode 1, 
is obedience to authority. Obedience to Authority is the name of a book that came that was written by Stanley Milgram, and the experiments that he did are sometimes called the Milgram experiments. Um, but I'll just read you a little bit. Obedience to Authority: An Experimental View is a 1974 book by social psychologist Stanley Milgram concerning a series of experiments on obedience to authority figures he conducted in the early 1960s. Between 1961 and 1965, Milgram carried out a series of experiments at Yale University in which human subjects were instructed to administer what they thought were progressively more painful electric shocks to another human being to determine what, to what extent people would obey orders even when they knew them to be painful and immoral. The experiments came under heavy criticism at the time, but were ultimately vindicated by the scientific community. So the, this excerpt series that Diana has put together are excerpts of Alan Watt talking about these experiments, and we will link to if there's videos out there on the experiments or other supplemental things, those will go up. So I don't know how many of these she'll want to do, but she's really into it. And I think this this is her video, first video, and she's done a great job. So I'm happy about that. And finally, one last thing is that week before last, I put up a real history with Darren from South Africa. And that's the third time that I've spoken with him. And this time... He was joined by a real, genuine grassroots activist named Petrus Sito, who is doing all that he can in his way, and he's genuine, no sponsorship, nothing like that, to bring attention to the farm attacks that have been happening for years in South Africa. And I, w I did not put this up on YouTube. It wasn't right for that channel, where and that's where things usually get a lot of views. But I noticed the other day when I looked and saw one of the Rumble channels, it had 500 views or a, probably a couple hundred views on BitChute. And then I know a lot of people never watch the video form of The Real History. They just listen to them on their podcast player or on the website. What I'm saying is that I know a lot of people heard or saw that talk and included in that was a way it's kind of a crowdfunding thing called Back a Buddy and I'm just hoping that those of you who appreciated the talk and appreciate what Petrus is doing will want to you know send the equivalent of a cup of coffee do what you can to support that because I think this is I think this is one of those important things that somebody who's just like you and I, you know, somebody's doing to bring attention to a very serious, terrible problem. And finally, um, I'm kind of tired after this week, but I, before I forget, I wanted to say that there was something about the car trouble and the refrigerator trouble and then trying to do everything and uh, spend time with family and you know, just seemed like there were lots of things that were going wrong or demanding my attention and I was thinking about the very very wealthy people 
who are involved in the think tanks and the foundations, uh, the philanthropists, Alan was talking about, you know, the CFRs, this is the time for the philanthropists to be brought to the fore and kind of take over in the public-private partnerships between private industry foundations and between private people and government. And what made me think about me, a little person with problems, and them, billionaires who are setting the agenda and putting it all into action, when I was looking into the institute that I'll talk more about next week, one of the players there had had a, um, had been involved on the board of something with Eric Schmidt, who was formerly the CEO of Google. And I wanted to find out a little bit about this board that they were on. And I thought, well, yeah, Eric Schmidt, that's a name I've heard over and over, Google, Schmidt, Google. But I don't know anything about him. And I, I don't know much more about him today. But just in the course of looking up a few things, I learned that he's been married for a long time, but he has what you might describe as an open relationship. I guess he has girlfriends. And that was a little less interesting t to me than his wife, his longtime wife, who is also a philanthropist. She's a yachtswoman, a yachter. And because of that, it is said that she has a deep interest in preserving the oceans, making sure that they are clean, etc. But when I looked in uh, just briefly into her charitable organization, it isn't just the oceans that she's interested in, but everything that she's involved in goes lockstep with sustainability, with Agenda 21. And it's very interesting, these philanthropist billionaires, because part of the way that they are presented to us Part of that presentation is that they're people just like us, and they're not. This is what Bertrand Russell wrote about when he said that soon they would be considered a separate species. And we are really there, because I thought, you know, you've got people, they, they collect cars, right? They may be driven in a car from here to there. But do any of them know how to take an air filter off? Not just because it's fun to take an air filter off, but because you need to drop a spoonful of gasoline into the carburetor to get your car started, right? You know? Or do any of them, would they ever uh, feel a serious loss about the contents of a refrigerator going bad? Would they be down on their hands and knees in a garage that was over 100 degrees? picking out nuts <laughs> and shredded garden glove. Uh, and that's it, you know. I, I think I'll, I'll touch on this again, I'm sure, in the future, because it is this idea that Alan talked about a lot, that we are, that we've been trained to worship our so-called betters. 
and we've been trained that they know better. They're the experts, and they're the experts with money. And in this society, this culture that we've been given, money is everything. Money fixes everything, right? You know, if you've got money, you drive a new car. If you've got money, someone drives your new car for you, and you sit in the back seat and whatever <laughs> with your good-looking girlfriend. <laughs> or, you know, if you, if you have money... You know, you've got to cook, and you don't even know what, you barely know what a refrigerator looks like, you know, so. But that's only part of the series. I mean, that's not even really part of the series. The series is just how deep are these foundations into our everyday life? By what, by the policy that they have a hand in changing or bringing about, by the change agents that they train up and groom, so to speak, and prepare to be presented to us. So, anyway, anybody who wants to read Foundations of Power and Influence, get started on it. I'll be reading it. And here is Alan. Thank you. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and Alan Watt Sentient Sentinel.eu on May the 10th, 2007. Tonight I'm going to read a little bit from a magazine called The Wilson Quarterly. This is from Spring 2007 edition. It has to do also with the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. On the front page here it's called The Climate Engineers. I should say, first of all, this magazine is published internationally. This is for the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, Washington, D.C. This article is written by James R. Fleming. I think it also mentions in here of his different affiliations, which are interesting to look up always. The affiliations tell you an awful lot about who's who and who's writing what. Uh, James R. Fleming, uh, the author of this particular article, is a public policy scholar. So public policy scholar. Interesting. The Wilson Center and holder of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, Roger Revelle Fellowship in Global Environmental Stewardship. He's a professor of science, technology, and society at Colby College, Waterville, Maine. It gives you a list of some of his books. So he's already, it's written by one of them, one of those guys, one of those guys in the know on the big con that's going on. And so they can't give, obviously, anything near a fair description. But this article is written almost in a British fashion, where they'll give you little bits of facts mixed with almost comedy and alarm together, which leaves the reader in a limbo land where the fear gets into you. You will think, my God, there's a bunch of crazy people running this, this particular system, which intensifies the fear. And they also give you the disinformation to do with, in this case, it's global warming. 
this uh, article says, The Climate Engineers. As alarm over global warming spreads, a radical idea is gaining momentum. Forget cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, some scientists argue. Find a technological fix. Bound sunlight back into space by pumping reflective nanoparticles into the atmosphere. Launch mirrors into orbit around the Earth. Create a planetary thermostat. But what sounds like science fiction is actually an old story. For more than a century, scientists, soldiers and charlatans have hatched schemes to manipulate the weather and climate. Like them, today's aspiring climate engineers widely exaggerate what is possible and they scarcely consider political, military and ethical implications of attempting to manage the world's climate with potential consequences far greater than any their predecessors were likely to face. My little comment there is that's how they would present that in Britain. So it doesn't poo-poo any evidence against global warming theory. It doesn't mention to start off uh, that we go through all these different cycles continuously, many ice ages, many global warming ages, back and forth, and some larger ones. And since this is supposedly a fairly new study in history, since it didn't supposedly take such a tests before and accurate records in the the late past how much of their data can even be counted on as reliable it doesn't mention that part so so the debate is over this begins with the debate on global warming being over and that the facts are real and that's how it's put into your mind Beyond the security checkpoint at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's Ames Research Centre at the southern end of San Francisco Bay, a small group gathered in November for a conference on the innocuous topic of managing solar radiation. The real subject was much bigger, how to save the planet from the effects of global warming. Again, debate over, not is there global warming, but debate over. There was little talk amongst the two dozen scientists and other specialists about carbon taxes, alternative energy sources, or the other usual remedies. Remedies. So once again, it sunk in that there are supposed to be remedies. Many of the scientists were impatient with such schemes. Some were simply contemptuous of calls for international cooperation and policies and lifestyle changes needed to curb greenhouse gas emissions. Others had concluded that the world's politicians and bureaucrats are not up to the job of agreeing on such reforms or that global warming will come more rapidly and with more catastrophic consequences than many models predict. Now, they believe, it is time to consider radical measures. A technological... There's a little cartoon on their page here. A technological quick fix for global warming. Mitigation is not happening and it's not going to happen, physicist Lowell Wood declared at the NASA conference. Wood, the star of the gathering, spent four decades at the University of California, Lawrence, Livermore National Laboratory, where he served as one of the Pentagon's chief weapon designers and threat analysts. You can trust this guy, to tell you the truth, the Pentagon. He reportedly enjoys the Dr. Evil nickname bestowed by his critics, The time has come, he said, for an intelligent elimination of undesired heat from the biosphere by technical ways and means, 
which she asserted could be achieved for a tiny fraction of the cost of the bureaucratic suppression of CO2. His engineering approach, he boasted, would provide instant climatic gratification. Now this is the guy, remember, who took over from Teller. He was a protege of Teller, the, the earlier. He was, he was Dr. Evil, uh, part one. Uh, Wood is part two. And it was Teller who came up with the whole idea of using metallic particles to intensify or cool, depending on the type they used, uh, the atmosphere for weather warfare purposes. But now they're your saviors. The war men are now your saviors, remember. And the Pentagon, you can trust the Pentagon. To continue, would advance several ideas to fix the Earth's climate, including building up Arctic sea ice to make it function like a planetary air conditioner to suck heat in from the mid-latitude heat bath. A surprisingly practical way of achieving this, he said, would be to use large artillery pieces to shoot as much as a million tons of highly reflective sulfate aerosols or specially engineered nanoparticles into the Arctic stratosphere to deflect the sun's rays. So here they are, as we say, down on Earth here, trying to eliminate your cars because of all the different sulfur emissions, but they want to spray it above your heads to save you. Delivering up to a million tons of material via artillery would require a constant bombardment, basically declaring war on the stratosphere. Alternatively, a fleet of B-747 crop dusters could deliver the particles by flying continuously around the Arctic Circle, or a 25-kilometer-long sky hose could be tethered to a military superblimp high above the planet's surface to pump reflective particles into the atmosphere. Well, we're already being sprayed, and we have been for years. So this whole story is a sideline for a different purpose. Remember, quite a few years ago, there was a book came out called The Report from Iron Mountain, which was a big think tank that was held on behalf of the Pentagon some years back on how society is held together and managed and governed by the system. And they said it's held together by war, or the threat of war. And for a global society, they would have to find a new kind of enemy. Well, they have found it, you see. They've made it. And like all enemies, they demonize it. They demonize it. And so this article here is part of the con game, the continuing con game, in an almost light-hearted manner. Far-fletched as Wood's ideas may sound, his weren't the only Rube Goldberg proposals aired at the meeting. Even as they joked about a NASA staffer's apology for her inability to control the temperature in the meeting room, others detailed their own schemes for manipulating Earth's climate. Astronomer Jai Roger Angel suggested placing a huge fleet of mirrors in orbit to divert incoming solar radiation at a cost of only several trillion dollars. War must be profitable, you see. Atmospheric scientist John Latham and engineer Stephen Salter hawked their idea of making marine clouds thicker and more reflective by whipping ocean water into a froth with giant pumps and egg beaters. Most frightening was the science fiction writer and astrophysicist Gregory Benford's announcement that he wanted to cut through red tape and demonstrate what could be done by finding private sponsors for his plan to inject 
diatomaceous earth, the chalk-like substance used in filtration systems and cat litter into the Arctic stratosphere. He, like his fellow geoengineers, was largely silent on the possible unintended consequences of his plan. Oops. But there you go. That, that's the kind of stuff to feed the public to terrify us that a bunch of madmen are in control that don't know what they're doing. Now, all of these characters live on massive grants their whole life long. And these characters do what they're told. They do what they're told. And it is true at the top, they make sure that every possibility is covered, so each one is given his specific area of speciality to follow. That's how you always maintain power down through the ages. You make sure you look at every possibility that could ever possibly happen, and every type of divergence from each possibility and consequences, and you come up with solutions in advance. The inherent unknowability of what would happen if we try to tinker with the immensely complex planetary climate system is one reason why climate engineering has until recently been spoken of only sotto voice in the scientific community. Many researchers recognize that even the most brilliant scientists have a history of blindness to the wider ramifications of their work. Imagine, for example, that Wood's scheme to thicken the Arctic ice cap did somehow become possible. While most of the world may want to maintain or increase polar sea ice, Russia and some other nations have historically desired an ice-free Arctic Ocean, which would liberate shipping and open potentially vast oil and mineral deposits for exploitation and an engineered Arctic ice sheet would likely produce shorter growing seasons and harsher winters in Alaska, Siberia, Greenland, and elsewhere, and can generate super winter storms in the mid-latitudes. Yet Wood calls his brainstorm a plan for global climate stabilization and hopes to create a sort of planetary thermostat to regulate the global climate. That means that someone's in control of the thermostat and guess who's paying for the fuel. Who would control such a thermostat making life-altering decisions for the planet's billions? The top psychopath is that's who it would be. What is to prevent other nations from undertaking unilateral climate modification? The United States has no monopoly on such dreams. November 2005, for example, Yuri Israel, head of the Moscow-based Institute of Global Climate and Ecology Studies, wrote to Russian President Vladimir Putin, to make the case for immediately burning massive amounts of sulfur in the stratosphere to lower the Earth's temperature a degree or two, a correction greater than the total warming since pre-industrial times. There is, moreover, a troubling motif of militarization in the history of weather and climate control. Military leaders in the United States and other countries have pondered the possibilities of weaponized weather manipulation for decades. Lowell Wood himself embodies the overlap of civilian and military interests. Now affiliated with the Hoover Institution, remember these big think tanks and institutes and foundations, a think tank at Stanford University, Wood was a protege of the late Edward Teller, the weapons scientist who was credited with developing the hydrogen bomb and was the architect of the Reagan-era Star Wars missile defense system, which Wood worked on too. There's a lot of work to be done in that area, and these guys, being good psychopaths, have a good nose for sniffing it out and get on the payroll, like all good psychopaths. 
Like Wood, Teller was known for his advocacy of controversial military and technological solutions to complex problems, including the chimerical peaceful uses of nuclear weapons. Teller's plan to excavate an artificial harbor in Alaska using thermonuclear explosives actually came close to receiving governmental approval. Before his death in 2003, Teller was advocating a climate control scheme similar to that which would proposed. Despite the large unanswered questions about the implications of playing God with the elements, climate engineering is now being widely discussed in the scientific community and is taken seriously within the U.S. government. The Bush administration has recommended the addition of this important strategy to an upcoming report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Remember what it said for the United Nations to bind the world together and under world government to find crisis after crisis uh, and create these huge international panels, you see, bringing us all together. We are the world. We are the children. That's how it goes. So the, the, the panel on climate change, the UN-sponsored organization whose February studies seemed to persuade even the Bush White House, haha, <laughs> they persuaded them, to take global warming more seriously. And climate engineering's advocates are not confined to the small group that met in California. Last year, for example, Paul J. Crudson, an atmospheric chemist and Nobel laureate, proposed a scheme similar to Woods, and there's a long paper trail of climate and weather modification studies by the Pentagon and other government agencies. As the sole historian at the NASA conference, NASA, you see, NASA's part of the military complex, remember. Yes, you think they were just taking little spiders up into space to see if they could mate the same ways on Earth when they're in free falling. I may have been alone in my appreciation of the irony that we were meeting on the side of an old U.S. Navy airfield, literally in the shadow of the huge hangar that once housed the ill-starred Navy dirigible USS, now it's M-A-C-O-N, and I think they're using the French spelling or writing of Mason. That's what it looks like to me. That's how it is in Mason. So USS Mason, the Sons of Light, you know, that's what that was all about in the French. The 78 five-foot-long Mason, a technological wonder of its time, capable of cruising at 87 miles per hour and launching five Navy biplanes, lies at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, brought down in 1935 by strong winds. No wonder that it war with the weather after losing all that money. But no problem, there's lots of taxpayers to make it up. The Navy's entire rigid airship program went down with it. Coming on the heels of the crash of its sister ship, the Akron, the Mason's destruction showed the design of these technological marvels was fundamentally flawed. The hangar, built by the Navy in 1932, is now both a historic site and a super fun site, since it has been discovered that its Galbestos siding is leaching PCBs into the drains. As I reflected on the fate of the Navy dirigible program, the geoengineers around the table were confidently and enthusiastic promoting techniques for climate intervention that were more than several steps beyond what might be called state-of-the-art, with implications not simply for a handful of airship crewmen, but for every one of the 6.5 billion inhabitants of the planet. Ultimate 
control of the weather and climate excites some of our wildest fantasies and our greatest fears. It is the stuff of age-old myths. Throughout history, we mortals have tried to protect ourselves against harsh weather, but weather control was reserved for the ancient sky gods. Now the power has seemingly devolved to modern titans. We are undoubtedly facing an uncertain future. Now there's a little slip there, you see. We are undoubtedly facing an uncertain future. Well, see, the future is always uncertain. So is living in all ages. (laughs) But he's referring to the really unproven facts that we're actually warming. Never mind all the spraying they've been doing for years to increase the temperature, which is happening. doesn't mention that at all, you see. Once they start mentioning the fact that, that these massive spring operations have been going on for years, daily, across the planet, as we're warming, I might start thinking that they might have something to say that's true. Otherwise, we're getting a spin, a divergent way of thinking and looking at things. He goes on about, um, with rising temperatures, increasing emissions of greenhouse gases, and a growing world population see the same old fears that the elite, the psychopaths have always had. We may be on the verge of a worldwide climate crisis. We may be. We may be. What shall we do? Question mark. Doing nothing or too little is clearly wrong, but so is doing too much. Largely unaware of the long and checkered history of weather and climate control and the political and ethical challenges it poses, or somehow considering themselves exempt, the new titans see themselves as heroic pioneers, the first generation capable of alleviating or averting natural disasters. They're largely oblivious to the history of the charlatans and sincere but deluded scientists and engineers who preceded them. If we fail to heed the lessons of that history and fail to bring its perspectives to bear in thinking about public policy, we risk repeating the mistakes of the past in a game with much higher stakes. Then it goes on about uh, some of the history of previous scientists who've tried to fiddle with the weather. And it's an old science, it's old stuff, really, in all reality. Uh, This is for public consumption, this kind of thing. It doesn't poo-poo the evidence towards the global warming. doesn't mention the spring that has been going on before the public even heard the term global warming. doesn't mention the fact it's a UN policy to find some massive world enemy to bring us all together to fight. And it doesn't mention the fact that, no, it's not new at all. All the ancient priesthoods used the sun in the sky as a god, which they served, of course, being the priests, they spoke for the god. You always have gods, you see, with their spokesmen on earth, because the rest of the people seem to be too too stupid to communicate with the god. We need these interpreters who dress in funny clothing, with long dresses and stuff, and have little rituals where they wave things around, incense, and they burn incense, and have little mantras and stuff, and they can sometimes dance, nice little pretty dances, Nowadays, they just put suits and ties on or white coats, stand there in front of blackboards and squiggle lines to give us magic formula, which no one can understand or follow because it's all theory, which is magic formula. This is the technique that's been going on forever. And the ancient priesthoods, too, 
controlled the people who, especially after the first generation that's been brainwashed, the second generation believed the priests really do communicate with the sun, they could appease the sun, they could um, give thanks to the sun, and of course he didn't give the, the gifts and worked for the priesthoods or worked for the king that supposedly represented you all on behalf of the priesthoods who ran the system, the sun wouldn't even come up in the morning. Boy, there was a good one. That worked very well indeed too. Very profitable for the few at the top. Nothing really has changed. We're ruled by cons. It's the science of conology, which has many faces and names. Nothing really changes. You must terrify the public in order to rule them, especially if you're, you're a psychopath and you like to live at a standard of living stratospheres above the rest of the common people. And you want to make sure your protege, being superior, obviously, are going to pick it all up after you've gone and reign just like you. In Egypt, they used to say that the pharaoh represented the sun. He was the embodiment on earth of Ra, the sun. And that's why today royalty still reign over us because the rain was put out there in written verse in ancient times as being the fertility, fertilization of the earth by the sun. The sperm, you see. So the sun ruled over us, the rained over us, rain. What's really changed? Now, I'll tell you what, another thing too. You think the ones who have all of the money in the world at the top, who make, literally make, presidents and prime ministers and break them when required, would allow any boffins, scientific boffins, paid lackeys who live on grants from the foundations that also do what they're told from the top. Do you think they would risk these characters doing something that was going to harm them themselves? No. Nope. Wouldn't happen. Wouldn't happen. Therefore, we can tell this is the agenda to completely control everything on this planet, ultimately control it, for ultimate control, where your whole life from birth to death, at least for a generation or so, will be guided by experts. Then the next bunch, of course, we know they're going to enhance the next generation's to be better slaves, more efficient, while the older types die off. But in the meanwhile, we older types must believe that we're under tremendous crisis and extinction looms ahead if we don't put our faith and trust and lives in the hands of the paid experts, the front men. Because the old way of living is completely to be destroyed. Overdone with. 
No marriage, no growing up looking for a job, no individual decisions to make. That's the end of individualism for the common people. They declared war on that a long time ago. Many of these same professors and other professors have written books on the death of individualism and why it must be so. They're talking about the commoners, you see. Individuality amongst the commoners has always been a problem to them down through the ages. It still is at the moment, but not for long. Unless we reclaim our rights and throw off the blinders and tell them, hey, we're not being fooled anymore. And we have to do it soon because they've got their whole, they've got the next few hundred years mapped out, just like the last few hundred years. We are living through a business plan, a script. And every major change in your life and all the minor ones that come along, which you think is your natural culture that you're born into, were scripted before you were born in this long-term business plan. We will all be put into these lovely habitat areas where our betters, our experts, will take care of us because they love us. They love us so much. In fact, they can't sleep by worrying about us. Constant worry. So they have Agenda 21 all wrapped up to move the big sheep herd into the brand new pen where everything will be taken care of for us and we won't have to make a single decision for the rest of our lives. That's what it's all about. The sky is falling, which in a sense it is with all the spray that's coming down. The climate is going crazy because of all the harp technology in use as they use it. The big magician, the Wizard of Oz, is waving his wand above our heads and through the airwaves and people are believing the media that doesn't talk about what's up above their heads or the little man behind the curtain, the scientist pulling all the levers. We are not to think for ourselves. As Brzezinski said, the public shortly will be unable to reason for themselves. They'll expect the media to do it for them. And you do see that everywhere. Along this vein is the article from this week's parallelnormal.wordpress.com The headline is Prepare to be transitioned into your new habitat and the brother is a brother The love transitioned transitioned is a fuzzy word it's a, it's a user friendly word it doesn't upset the sheep change might but transitioned transitioned and harmonized is better harmonize into one homogenous mass we'll all be very very happy for us all we'll all be one and it continues this is from Monday May the 7th 2007 ride the bus wireless net to attract commuters and I like the photograph that's on it of uh, a lot of people I think in India where they crowd them into the buses and on top of the buses and the trains too to give us an idea of the reality as opposed to the fantasy and it says buses at least in Boston 
are filthy and grossly inefficient. Accidents and shootings are common, although the police are quick to assure uninjured passengers when they were not targeted in gangster-on-gangster hits. Who gave them their culture, eh? But since buses will be the primary mode of ground transportation in the UN-defined urban habitats, officials and the media are trying to sweeten the experience for city dwellers. Motorola, MIT, and a supportive Boston Globe. Mark is also a reporter for this globe. This week made the case for adding wireless internet access and TVs to buses to lure individuals out of their cars. They claim that wireless connections between bus riders will foster the growth of urban habitat areas or urban gardens, as sociologist Federico Casalegno called them in the Boston Globe on Sunday. Casalegno, who has just designed a futuristic-looking prototype bus station at MIT, is collaborating with the university's Smart Cities Group, which is headed by the architect and urban planner William J. Mitchell. MIT is a big player with government. It always had, and the CIA. They have more government buildings there. And they get funded from the taxpayer through these covert operations and even down to the, the big monitoring of the Internet. They're a big player in doing that. They have a lot of uh, special rights that no one else has. I know because my firewall gets hit with them all the time. But Casalegno's real job, which the Globe article does not mention, is not interesting too. This Casalegno, who's, who's really pushing this, is working for Motorola where he is a manager. He's a manager for the companies that will do the wireless internet and cell phone stuff in the buses. There's no conflict of interest here. Of course not. It's public-private management, isn't it? It's just a public-private deal. The new feudal system that Professor Carol Quigley talks about, it was already running back in the 60s very well. In fact, Quigley mentioned back then it had been on the go, this global structure of supranational governments for over 50 years at that time. Motorola's and Mitchell's plans do not allow for weekend excursions to the country, let alone opportunities to reside permanently outside the city. But ubiquitous wireless connections will benefit Motorola and a Sovietized transportation system will help cities such as Boston comply with the UN's Agenda 21. In his book E-Topia, Mitchell describes future urban centers characterized by live work dwellings, that's called camps, folk, labor camps, and 24 pedestrian-scale neighborhoods, according to his publisher and Motorola's current vision, according to Monday's Financial Times, is seamless con- connectivity, seamless connectivity, <laughs> access to information at any time, on any device and anywhere. So there you go. Uh, this is really steamrolling ahead. The plan was laid down before I was born. There were books written about this. We're all now the fish. We're fish in a huge net. And they're pulling the rope now to close the mouth of the net. And we're all inside the net.
that's what's happening right now. And the thousand points of light, the big corporations and NGOs are pulling the strings. The old Masonic um, term used by Franklin and others and George Bush's father. Now reading from William Jai Mitchell's book, E-Topia. You see, they're all utopians, but E-topians for electronic topians. This is what the marketers have said. It's supposed to be... This, this is, the whole book, no doubt, was ghostwritten for them because these characters at the top don't write their own books, including Al Gore. They, the experts basically get together panels who then write it up for them, and they front for it at shows where they're paid half a million dollars to speak about it to the masses. And it says here, the global digital network is not just a delivery system for email, web pages, and digital television. It is a whole new urban infrastructure, one that will change the forms of our cities as dramatically as railroads, highways, electric power supply, and telephone networks did in the past. In this lucid, invigorating book, William Jai Mitchell examines this new infrastructure and its implications for our future daily lives. Picking up where his best-selling City of Bits left off, Mitchell argues that we must extend the definitions of architecture and urban design to encompass virtual places as well as physical ones, and interconnection by means of telecommunication links as well as by pedestrian circulation and mechanized transportation systems. He proposes strategies for the creation of cities that not only will be sustainable, sustainable development, there you go, Agenda 21, you see, sustainable, but will make economic, social and cultural sense in an electronically interconnected and global world. The new settlement patterns of the 21st century, now you better think about this really hard, the new settlement patterns, that's your big camps, folks of the 21st century will be characterized by live-work dwellings, kind of like upstairs, downstairs, you know, where all, all the servants sleep uh, under the tables, beneath the, the sugar bins and stuff like that, where they work. It'll have 24-hour pedestrian-scale neighborhoods, rich in social relationships, <laughs> and vigorous local community life, complemented by far-flung configurations of electronic meeting places and decentralized production. That's like work at home, I guess, in your little, your little cell. Marketing and distribution systems. Neither digifile nor digiphobe. I guess that's a little pun. Mitchell advocates the creation of Etopia's cities that work smarter, not harder, like smart bombs. My smart bombs that, that, that uh, had the greater destruction. So I guess you were working harder. Really, not so smarter. William Jai Mitchell is Alexander W. Dreyfus, Professor of Architecture and Media Arts and Sciences and directs the Smart Cities Research Group at MIT's Media Lab. He was formerly Dean of the School of Architecture and Head of the Program in Media Arts and Sciences at MIT. And I think everybody who, who was a professor at MIT was also working for the CIA. And this guy also is a manager in one of the, the, the companies that will be benefiting, like Motorola or something like that. 
this is the, how they market the, how wonderful it will all be as we're stuck like ants crammed together in these Orwellian type cities but it will be, they won't be living there though because they will have exemptions they will be able to have private vehicles called essential vehicles only they don't mention that in this little marketing spiel here but for the rest of the public there's to be no public transportation quite interesting now on May the 9th 2007 parallel normal we have this particular photograph you should look into it and it's called it's called um, the brother is a brother this is a black fellow with his big chain round his neck it says check it yo David Johnson calls his silver neck piece his Masonic bling NPR this week ran a favorable piece about Freemasonry and its newest recruits so see link and excerpt below in an audio slideshow at the NPR site a mason weeps over the value of a gavel that belonged to George Washington if you love history he says you've got to love the masons never mind that it's his story we're talking about here the white man's that is the NPR piece features Alan Patterson 39 the first African American senior officer at the Naval Lodge Number no. 4 in Washington D.C. is the right age for getting there because of course they love 3 times 13 quick to embrace an organization that once excluded blacks and which ESO researchers say is designed to oppress the masses Patterson now mocks that the, the conspiracists oh, it's cons- suddenly they're all conspiracists when they get up the ladder everybody below them is a conspiracist all the stuff you see on the internet from devil worship to sacrificing virgins I joke you know we do have a couple of New York Yankee fans but that's not really considered Satan Patterson tells NPR because they actually talk about Lucifer in the lodge you see they don't talk about Satan so that's that's a little bit there you'll find on the parallel normal website May 9th 2007 yeah it's amazing how people but again the psychopathic ones who always end up being leaders of every group and creed have no problem getting a payoff you can, see if you're a psychopath you can rationalize anything you do to save your own ego and black will become white white will become black and opposites can, can change instantly to satisfy the ego and they say that everyone has their price old old saying in ancient times from the Middle East everyone had their price you could always go into a place and buy off someone who, who then would do the dirty on their own people without any qualm because we live in a psychopathic structural system of economics and money so naturally only, only the evil uh, vicious ones will claw their way to the top in any part of this structurized system and they always become terrified of those they leave behind the masses frighten them and they will always turn on the masses that standard in the history of the world and psychopathy people should try and get a hold of a book 
put out by the Club of Rome in the 90s. It's called The First Global Revolution. It's in a paperback version. By Alexander King, who's the author, and Bertrand Schneider, the other author. They both worked for the Club of Rome. Alexander King was one of the founders for the Club of Rome. And he also, for many years, worked for the United Nations via Britain and France with the Overseas Economic Corporation for Development, which is just a, you pay your tax money to the United Nations that then distributes it to the big international corporations in the poor countries, where it goes into lots of pockets of the guys at the top. Every country has a department of this and has had since the end of World War II. In that book, they go into methods that they discussed, King and Schneider and others had discussed about setting up. Because they're just, actually they're described as a big think tank, you see, that comes up with the ideas for shaping the future, the Club of Rome. And they then market those ideas to all the lesser foundations that then put it into action and implement it through media, which is called consciousness raising. They, they shape the direction you're supposed to think into and give your opinions so you're being shepherded and crafted carefully along a predetermined path which the Club of Rome and others have shaped for you. And in that book, they talk about ways to unite the planet and not only unite them, to bring in this scientific system where scientists could bypass governments and without and, and do things without asking permission of the people or governments because it's to be a world of experts like Bertrand Russell talked about and other ones talked about. The, the, the illumined ones have to guide us and shape us because, after all, they're brighter than the rest of us, you see. And by social Darwinism and its standards, they are naturally the ones that should be the bosses, according to themselves. And they talked about ways years ago to make the public give up all their old habits old habits like picking a mate and having children willy-nilly and how all the lesser types were breeding, just breeding out of control. And there'd be too many of the lesser types in the future and they had to find ways of, of bringing all that population down. But how do you do it? How do you get them to change their ways and come into habitat areas where the experts can manage us in a eugenics-type fashion? And in the book, this book I mentioned, The First Global Revolution, they say that they hit upon the idea of environmental crisis so that the environment and the weather would become the enemy and we'd all have to be terrified into giving up all our old, nasty little, petty, random ways and be organized properly as our betters see fit. They're using, as we know, as I've said many times, the HARP-type technology. They have more than one station, not just the one in Alaska. And they're spraying the entire planet right now, daily, with metallic particles that Teller suggested back in the 50s. 
The evidence is above your head. It's all around you. And a thousand points of light the George Bush Sr. mentioned when he talked about the New World Order coming into view. He said a thousand points of light are working towards this agenda right now. These are the guys holding the strings of the net as they pull it all together. A thousand big foundations and NGOs with many, many ones beneath them all working towards this to coordinate this massive interconnected plan to bring the sheep into the new sheep pen, into our little green folds in the city slums, this new soylent green, where we'll probably have plastic rubber plants, because we'll have to find some way to dispose of all of those oil products and, and plastics made of the byproducts of oil industry. That's why they made it very popular to drink spring water from plastic bottles. Not only do you pay for the plastic, they get rid of their waste, just like the, this aluminum oxide called fluoride that's in your toothpaste. They find ways of getting rid of their waste on the sheeple down below. And they tell you it's good for you, good for you. As you take this xenoestrogen into your system, Again, another thing talked about a long time ago by Charles Galton Darwin, how to get more, how to alter the hormonal levels of the public. Isn't it just amazing how it all fits together? I don't know people, I don't personally know people in ordinary society that can come up and make wish lists and everything happens in sequence to make it happen for them. Boy, that's luck. That's luck, isn't it? Well, of course, there's no luck involved here. This agenda was on the go long, long ago. It was discussed at the time of the French Revolution. People think it was just a middle-class French Revolution of the people using the masses to get more power. In one sense, that was true. However, in another sense, it was to do with a, a planned society. Not only were they chopping off the heads of the useless aristocracies, the lesser types, they were also sinking boatloads in different rivers of ordinary peasants in certain rural areas because they claimed there were too many of them. Well, how do you eliminate poverty? Well, you get rid of enough of the poor. That hasn't changed, that whole eugenics philosophy. After all, if you allow them to live... They'll breed, my goodness. H.G. Wells said that. He says, what do we do? He says, we give inoculations to the people. We give this and that to the people, better standards of living, more hygiene. And what do they do? My goodness, they breed. And that really upset little H.G. Wells, who thought he was the only person in the world that should run around in a manic frenzy, breeding willy-nilly. But then, of course, he had superior genes belonging to the Fabian Society and all and rubbing shoulders with Lord and Lady Astor, who were sent from the U.S. to help fund the whole Fabian system. You tie all of the massive propaganda that's marketed to us from all so many television programs and media magazines and wildlife programs, all 
telling us the same stuff and how we must go in a certain direction and do it for a whole generation and the public will go into it thinking it's all perfectly natural, especially when you can pull a few switches and lo and behold, you have storms wherever you want them, mind you. And say, look at those storms. Nature is just going berserk. You've got to get out of that car there and take this bus, which will cost you a fortune, mind you. And you'll have no private property within that little happy work habitat place. Bertrand Russell said in one of his books, as far back as the 1920s, that the future system will be given a sign of a type of credit. Everyone will get, be allocated X amount of credits by the government at the beginning of every week to pay their rents. There will be no private property. And to pay your food. Everything will be tracked. And you must use all of them up by the end of the week because it will start afresh at zero then added into on the Monday. You can't save up your credits because we must be all happy little equal commoners at the bottom. He also said that if we were to disobey our betters, you know, the superior ones, the experts, they will withdraw credits from your accounts, withhold them, and you can't pay your rent or you can't buy your food. And that will be a form of social punishment. Isn't it amazing how it's all coming to pass? Not only put all this electronic gear into the buses to entice you out of your cars, they'll go further than that, mind you. And when you're outside driving around, you'll see so many people with cell phones stuck on their ears as they chat away, chat, 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 and fail to indicate and almost cut you off, or sometimes they do cut you off because they're absorbed in their chatting you see how they're all being trained towards the brain chip, ultimately, where many people will want to be interconnected, thinking it'll be just wonderful. A thought will connect me with Aunt Marge. Just a thought, I'll be connected instantly. But they don't tell you the other side of the coin, because once you're chipped, there'll be no more you. You'll be programmed to do a task, a function, to serve your betters. The altruistic ones at the top, the ones who are your saviors, self-appointed, the godlike ones. Step by step, everything is coming together as planned, but it's easy to do when you have the whole money off the planet, which is just a con game anyway and can create it out of thin air and you've trained populations to believe it's all real you can fund as many think tanks as you wish this is called good governance where the public as Francis Bacon said in one of his little resumes to the king it is best off that the public do not understand the real motivations of government, but it's best that they think they understand. In other words, for everything that happens, there's always a good reason given, but there's always a real reason behind it. 
That's my blurb for tonight. From Hamish myself, it's good night. And may your God, or your gods, and your chatter go with you. I met my love by the gas yard wall. Dreamed a dream by the old canal. I kissed my girl by the factory wall. Dirty old town, dirty old town. I heard a siren from the top. Saw a train. Set the night on fire. I smelt the spring on the smoky wind. Dirty old town, dirty old town. Clouds are drifting across the moon. Cats are prowling on their beats. Springs a girl on the streets at night. Dirty old town. Dirty old town. I'm going to make a big sharp axe, shining steel, tempered in the fire. I'll chop you down like an old tree. Dirty old town, dirty old town. I met my love by the gas yard wall. Dreamed a dream by the old canal. I kissed my girl. Factory wall, dirty old town, dirty old town, dirty old town, dirty old town.